cliffcentral.com. It's not difficult to think of a few things if you're a South African that make you feel at home. And one of those things is undoubtedly a spur. Now, it's become a it's become a bit of a like family joke that anyone who has kids, anytime, anywhere in South Africa, people are hungry, they got to head to the spur. And it's become an institution, but there's a man behind it who's a fascinating human being. He's also the father of an empire that includes more than 500 franchises under the Spur, Panoratis, John Dory's, and Rocker Mama's brands. He's also a fascinating human being in his own right. And he's written a brilliant book, which is called A Taste for Life. His name is Alan Amber. It's so nice to see you, Alan. How are you? Thanks. Uh, very well. Thanks very much, Gareth. Nice to you know, see you too. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to live in 2021 and to be able to hear the stories of entrepreneurs like yourself, because I think it's what a lot of people want to hear. You know, a lot of people like to believe that they too have something in them that could lead to the creation of a business empire or just realizing their dreams. And for many people, their dream might just be to start a place or a restaurant or a thing or an institution or a a facility or a venue where people can live and have fun and enjoy themselves. And yeah. I, I watch, you know, I, I watch with real interest when I see how much curiosity people have for these kinds of stories. And really you've done a superb job here. I mean, I was just reading through it um, about a week ago and l- looking at your descriptions of like your car in the Karoo that time, which was a, a Flavia or something. You called it the Sophia Loren of Flavia belonged to my mate, actually, Arthur. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just a beautiful description. So I, I want to get straight into it because there are a lot of people who will be really interested in your own story and then also interested in the Spurs story, which comes about as a result of your story. But tell us a little bit about the family background. Well, my folks came from Europe and my father got here in 1928 because the company worked for sent him here. But my mom actually fled Hitler and she lost a sister and my dad lost three siblings and his parents. So there was this underlying angst, you know, that the world was a very dangerous place, especially if you're Jewish, which I am. And it looks like without getting too frantic, like, Things are going that way again. It's amazing how things go in cycles. Um, so yeah. we, we had a good home life, but my parents were a product of a devastating time for their families. And that, of course, impacted upon their child. Yeah. Um, I so, mean, this is a thing, this is a thing many people talk about is this, is this Holocaust guilt and the, the effect that that had on generations that came afterwards. And it's very real and, yeah. and it can, it can be, it can be devastating to people. There's, there's built in depression. There's a huge amount of like survivor guilt for the ones who made it through. And then for the yeah. ones who didn't, there's this feeling of tremendous sadness, which, which lasts for generations. It does. It does. It actually permeates. The consciousness, but I'm very fortunate that my parents were very upbeat, positive people in the main. They didn't sit around feeling sorry for themselves. They had an attitude that they put on to me. They didn't inflict it. They imbued me. That's the better word. Right. And um, as a result of that, because they were both very hardworking, both very dedicated to what they did, 
Um, I had a good upbringing. Uh, I wasn't spoilt. We didn't have money throwing around. We, we worked for everything that we got. And I was taught that if you want something, you've got to go out there and earn it. You know, you can't expect somebody, some fairy godfather or mother to wave a wand and make it happen for you. If you want it, you've got to make it happen. Now and you're, that's what you're happened. Very- I mean, your very humble beginnings, you certainly were not, and you have never been in your life, to my understanding, a, a boring kind of stick-in-the-mud business kind of guy, you know, one of those cookie-cutter accountant types. I mean, no, you're not. I mean, you, have you still got your ponytail? You're, you're like a surfer. You're, yeah. you're a, a bit of a – yeah, there we are. You're an anomaly. Yeah. You're, a bit of a, you're a bit of a weirdo. I love people like that. You've got real yeah, character and, and, and personality, of- and you've had that. You've had that for, you know, all the time that you've been in – in business and, and even before must've been when you were a child that this personality was, was built. So how, how did it all tell, tell us about that night in the Karoo, because that's kind of where the story begins and it's a beautiful way to paint the picture for everybody. Yeah, it was incredible. The year before we'd come to Cape Town on holiday, Arthur and I, and this time he'd brought his fiance with him who he'd met in the interim and the first year we slept in Beaufort West for three hours before he decided we were going on, but he'd rested. This time he decided, no, to hell with that. We are going through the night straight to Cape Town. And it was incredible. We were on this very straight stretch of road, one in the morning, sky was dark, no moon, lots of stars. I was in the back seat of a two-door, big uh, Italian galleon, I think is how I described it. And we were pelting down the road. And it's incredible how I instantly realized that Arthur had fallen asleep. But I didn't believe it because the car was solid. It was going. Uh, It wasn't veering off the road. He hadn't slumped forward. But after about, I don't know, 20 seconds, it appeared we were heading for a rock face. Because the road now got... The straight road got a turn to the left, and the road had been cut into a copy. And we were heading for this rock face. So I said, Arthur, are you awake? And he woke up with a start, and he turned the wheel, and we missed the rock face. But we went across the road over the other side, and we tumbled nose over tail three or four times down a steep shale slope until we came to rest with the nose facing in the direction we'd come from. I don't know how that happened. Arthur wasn't in the car. His door was open. His fiancée, Mina, was saying, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, only she didn't use the word goodness. I got out. I saw Arthur lying there. He was out. He was unconscious. I pulled Mina out because I smelled petrol and took her to the side. And then I said to her, I'm going up because there was a car behind us. This was one one fifteen in the morning. And I was going to try and stop them. I tried to stop them after quite a long climb. And they drove right past me. If I hadn't got out the way, they would have run me over. But fortunately, the guy who was on duty at the station that night and was asleep heard the noise, heard the commotion. We were about five k's away. And he came out in his truck and I could hear the the gears grinding up the hill because we were going down into the valley where Lanesburg situated. And eventually he saw me and he he took Arthur into town and they got an ambulance and we all went through to Cape Town. So that's 
how the book starts. And it's a fantastic, quite exciting story, actually, mm. and quite a sobering event, to put it bluntly. Yeah, that's a hell of a start. Now, when, when something like that happens in most people's lives, um, they, they tend to have this kind of epiphany afterwards. They're like, oh, I've been wasting my life. Life is so precious. Life is so short. I want to do something with my life. I mean, did you have any of that immediately or did it take you a while to decide, no, no, this is, you, you've got more direction now? Well, no, I didn't actually. But what did happen was he had a little truck with a, a front seat. So Mina and Arthur got laid on the front seat, Mina sitting in the corner with a, his head on her lap, and they went into town and the guy came back and fetched me. I had this misguided feeling that I had to look after our possessions. So I was, and I also needed some time to myself because I was shocked. Mm. I sat yeah, on this white this white, whitewashed rock, and I waited, and all of a sudden, in the bowels of the car, a tape recorder clicked on, and the Beatles started singing, Michel, my belle, son de mon qui bon, très bien ensemble, and of course, I burst into tears, thinking of my parents and my girlfriend, who was waiting for me in Cape Town, and... So I didn't have that sort of epiphany, but I, there was a reaction to the shock of that terrible crash. And, I, you know, as the car went over the edge, Gareth, I thought, this is it. I'm going to die. And I was incredibly calm. It was very weird. Yeah. That, that, that's a strange thing. I mean, I've been in a car accident, too, and, and you smell and taste and hear and see everything in extraordinary detail. But you kind of think, oh, well, if this is it then I suppose that's it. You are calm. You're not screaming. Like, yeah. you know, there was no, no, there's nothing. So, so yeah. I, I want to fast forward a little bit because I mean, it's not as if your life in Cape town was straight from, you know, school into successful business either. I mean, you had some real adventures in your life and continue to have obviously. Yeah. And the question is, sorry, no, no, no. Tell us about some of these adventures you got up to long before you became the guy behind Spur and you opened up that first restaurant in Cape Town. Well, I didn't know what I was going to do when I left school. I had no clue. And my dad was selling carpets and upholstery materials and smoking pipes. You know, pipes were very popular. Right. in the This is uh, the 50s, 40s. And we were now in the mid-late 50s, 58, when I finished school. Didn't know what I was going to do. And the one sales manager who came out often from the carpet company invited me to England to train in the business, bearing in mind that he probably thought that this youngster, who he thought might be hardworking and bright, that he would end up running the business and, and working with them in the future. So I went to England on the second voyage on Easter Monday of the Pendennis Castle from Cape Town to London, to Southampton on the train to London. And I got on a motorbike in June of that year. I went in April and rode around Europe and had a couple of adventures going to various youth hostels and just being on my own and driving around Europe, which was an incredible treat. But Alan, I, I mean, these are things that to, to most of us who are much younger, we, we can't even imagine, you know, getting on a ship and, and sailing for, for weeks, if not months to get to England. Uh, and, then, days. and then, 
and then and then have yeah, it's a long time. I mean, that's not kind of, that's not what we're used to now. I mean, these days you hop on a flight and you could be there in in like twelve hours. Um, Correct. The fact that you could then hop on a bike and ride through Europe is—it just sounds like a a bygone era in some ways. It must have been very exciting. Unfortunately, I can vouch for that. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it, it was probably the most exciting formative time of your life. I mean, you meet different people, you see different things. Are there any of your memories of that time that you think you, you, you carried into your, your business career? Well, I think one of the great things my parents gave me was this work ethic, as I keep saying. And the company in England also, they were very kind to me. They got me attached to one of their reps who used to ride around England selling their products in the south and the centre of England. And he was a very proud Englishman, a dapper chap who had a, a Morris shooting break, you know, with the wood on the outside and a big yeah. boot to carry the samples. And he'd go out of my way. He was very proud of England. And he'd go out of his way to show me England. He took me to places in Devon called Waters Meet, where two rivers met, Cheddar Gorge. He took me to York Minster, the big cathedral. And all over England, he was so proud. And I was influenced. My dad, in any case, was an Anglophile coming from the Second World War and Churchill having defeated Hitler. And right. generally, I was, I was spoiled, but I worked for my keep, as it were. So yeah. that was a great adventure and learning from those guys and the sales manager who invited me over who was a great mate of my dad's they used to enjoy a whiskey together and he came out to South Africa quite often because that increased sales the mere fact that he was there people were willing to meet yeah. with him and go out for lunches etc and when I got to England I was a talking point I was this young 18 year old from South Africa who was coming to train, so they took me with them for lunch. And I remember the first lunchtime I was in London, uh, I had a gin and tonic, which I'd never had before, and at lunchtime, there I was, uh, a little bit the worse for wear. You know? <laughs> I mean, you also, you talk about how you narrowly uh, missed another accident in, uh, in France, it must have been. And there are all kinds of things that happened to you along the way, which, I mean, these are the the... the the lessons of, of youth and the time where you're meant to have fun. Was there ever any pressure on your, on your, on yourself from your parents or from the family to kind of get on with it and get a proper job? And, you know, I mean, you were earning your keep as you rightly explain, but to actually yes. decide on a career because, you know, parents in those days thought if you didn't get on with it and choose a career, you were a layabout and you were, you were wasting money and time. And what are you doing? Get yourself together. Now, my parents knew I worked hard because from the age of 15, I already worked in a delicatessen on weekends. And then I put myself through university because my dad moaned at me I wasn't working hard enough. So I said, okay, dad, I've got this joke, a job in a steakhouse. I'll pay you back. And that's what I did. I paid him back for all of my first year fees and um, – I carried on paying for myself working in the steakhouse and thank goodness for that because I had two real dead-end, boring, soul-destroying jobs thereafter. I mean, look at you, Gareth. Look at the job you've got. You have such fun. You meet so many interesting people. You get into all sorts of scrapes and it's wonderful. I, I take my hat off to you, you know. Uh, and uh, well, I wanted a life like that. 
<laughs> Look, it's it it has its risks, but then so did you. When I mean, let's just go back to the original Golden Spur, which was in Newlands yeah. in Cape Town. Yeah. And in your book, you you I mean, first of all, you print a picture of the menu, which is just unbelievable because a filet mignon, which was the most expensive item, was one rand fifty. I mean, these yes. days, if you go into even even a spur, if you go in with a, a, a rand fifty, they'll chase you out and say, "I'm sorry, there's nothing we have here for you that you can afford." <laughs> a rand but in fifty those days, is a tip. <laughs> that was a that was a lot of money in those days, though. Yes, it was the equivalent of two hundred and fifty bucks today. That's how sad capitalism is. That's the one area where it fails because it erodes your value. So if you don't invest your money carefully, you end up when you're older with very little and if you haven't got kids to look after you i mean it's it, it's a sad time you you know you're on your way out and you know that you can't really enjoy yourself whilst you're going through the exit door uh, so yeah. that's a bit of a problem but i want to talk about this golden spur because it wasn't your restaurant yeah. from the beginning um and and you saw no, this was. place and it, it you opened the first one because i was under the impression no. that in the book there was a restaurant there already. No, there wasn't. Let me, can, I, can, I, can I clarify? Yeah, please. I worked for a, a fellow in Johannesburg who worked with his uncle and his cousin. And they, the uncle, had opened a business with a partner called the Golden Spoon in Rosebank in Johannesburg. And he then okay. sold it to another man who'd run it into the ground, and it had become, by the wow. time I started getting involved, it had become defunct. And right. so one day when I was in Cape Town riding around looking for premises, I saw a place called a Black Steer, which was their second one in Johannesburg. He cribbed the name because they hadn't registered the name. So I thought, well, if I ever open in Cape Town, I can't use the name Steer. It was Black Steer. I have to use Golden Spur. And that name was actually owned by a company that may or may not exist. They sold coffee, haze, and uh, Five Roses Tea called Glenton and Mitchell. And they wrote me a lawyer's letter saying, you're using our name, but we'll sell it to you for 100 rand, which was big money in those days. And I bought sure. the name and I owned the name. So I couldn't use the name Steer. And I had to use the name Spur, which was a good thing in the final analysis because these guys couldn't really franchise. They had a few steakhouses in Joburg, a couple were franchised. But when they went to Cape Town or to Brackpan or to no. somewhere else, they, they couldn't, they didn't understand the concept of franchising, even though they were trying to franchise. And they let me down. Nine people were meant to come and help me open my business and not one arrived, even though we begged them and phoned them and controlled them and we'd signed a contract. And eventually we parted company. And because the, the, the old man, George Halamandra Sr., had mm -hmm. mentored me and been so helpful in many ways to me, I made another deal with him when I started my own franchise company after my partner and I split up because he was a bit of a lazy chap. And, and so, this is like, this is the late 60s, right? This is the late 60s, uh, yeah, early 70s right. now. Now, yes. what, was the, what was the market like at that time? And, and what was South Africa like? Because you had to be brave to do anything 
like open a restaurant, but to open a restaurant in, in Cape Town and to to know what what's going on in that market, you have to be pretty sharp, and your margins are thin. They always have been in restauranting, right? In 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 hospitality of any kind, you've got very very thin margins, and people aren't going to pay more than X for something, and they're not going to pay less than this because then they're worried the quality is poor. So you really have to know your business. Well, you know, Gareth, tell you the truth. I battled for four years before I could open my business. How I was, how I stuck to it and was so stubborn as to keep going, goodness knows, but I'm so grateful that I was. That's number one. Number two, there were very few restaurants, so demand was higher than supply. And number three, we were very profitable from the beginning because we did big turnover. So once you've paid your rent and your electricity, your marginal costs are nominal. The cost of your food is all you're paying for. And you've left your rent and your big overheads behind. Now you start making really good profits if you're making really good turnover. And the way we ran the business was to encourage people to eat. Eat it and beat it is how... Uh, some people express it, but they loved the energy. They loved the speed of service. They loved the way we looked after them. That the, They loved the way that nothing was too much trouble because my attitude was there's only one person who's important, and that's the customer. And I had a mantra, and the mantra was, it doesn't matter who suffers as long as it's not the business. And I suffered plenty, plenty. I worked ridiculous hours because we had nobody to help us open the business. And as long as a customer didn't suffer, he'd come back. And if he came back, we built up a rapport and they got to know us who ran the business. And it was a great feeling building this business. It was, it was so rewarding. It was so fulfilling. And it wasn't the money. I've never been a breadhead. I really haven't. I don't know much about mm that side of the business, but I knew about the creative side. I knew about looking after people because it was my natural instinct. So there are a couple of things from that story that you've just told now that got me thinking. The first one is how you really have to work hard. No matter who you are, luck will only take you so far. And hard work means the long hours you mentioned. It means having to manage other people. It means having to look after sometimes very difficult customers. There are a lot of people who are growing up today and they look at entrepreneurial stories, but they, they don't really pay attention to how much of that hard work plays a role. And I'll come to the other stuff in a minute, like the creativity and the energy. But sure. sometimes when you're in it, Alan, and there are many people who may be listening to you now thinking, God, I, I wish I could be as successful one day as, as you are. When you're in it, though, you don't realize that you're building a success. You're just kind of at the grindstone, right? You're not necessarily thinking about 10 years time or franchisees or any of the stuff you dealt with much later on. You're just trying to get sure. the day done and do as good a job as you can. Yes, you got it in a nutshell there, Gareth. You understand fully. And the fact that I started franchising only came about because a mate of mine who I was at school with walked in one Saturday night in December, and I went mm-hmm. up to him and welcomed him. How are you, Raymond? He said, fine. I said, you're down on holiday? He said, no, coming to live here. Oh, I said, and he was an accountant. I said, what are you going to do? He says, I want to open a steakhouse. I said, where? He said, in Belleville. I said, funny. The old mutual have contacted me. They have premises, which are still trading today, in Belleville, and they want me to open a a steakhouse. He says, well, will you help me? 
I said, sure, man, I'll franchise you because I understood what franchising was because they let me down so badly I knew what it took to open the business, the guys who were meant to franchise me. And he was my first franchisee, and he was very successful. He was a bit of a slow starter in Belleville, but after two and a half months, boy, they took off, and they're still there, and they're still motoring. So one can be proud of that. And I trained him very well, and I trained all his staff, and that's one of the crucial things in our business, training to your own standards. Don't let your staff set your standards. You've got to be alert all the time. You've got to tell them, you do it like this, you don't do it like that. And then you've got to correct them again, et cetera, et cetera. Vigilance. And Alan, obviously, I mean, one of the, the, the side stories in your book is the story of some of the staff who you've been uh, friends with, and, and many of them are like yeah. family to you and have been for, yeah. you know, upwards of 30, 40 years, which is an incredible part of the story. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you raised that because where I was blessed, and at the time didn't quite realize it, but it soon hit me, was that the first staff that I hired and maybe fired a few because they were not suitable for whatever reason, I was blessed to have people who loved working hard, who were talented. I had a griller who's unfortunately no longer on the planet. Uh, in His spirit is by the name of Shadrach Yeza, who was such a wonderful guy and so talented. And he loved the challenge of handling seven waiters, each of them with four or five orders simultaneously on the grill, not all of them coming off at the same time because some guys were into dessert, some guys were into hors d'oeuvres, but guys like him. And I had women who I trained to make our special sauces and juices, which uh, a friend of my mom set up with my first wife. And and really these people were loyal and they were competent and they were reliable and they, without them, I would have died. I would have drowned. Well, you mentioned the training and you kept your staff happy. I mean, you also looked after them as much as you trained them and oh. expected the best from them. You're, I would yes. say one word that comes to mind even today when I – when I order from Spur, which I'll have you know I still do, is consistency. Yeah. No, consistency. You you have managed, uh, and I think it's just sheer, sheer, sheer force of will on your part, managed to get a consistent product. I mean, it doesn't matter. You know what a Spur steak tastes like. It's just, and I know when I think about it, I get hungry. There's something about that that must have started with you back in like 67. Yeah. Well, to be honest... The people I worked for when I put myself through university who were meant to franchise me taught me a lot of that. But they didn't go out of their way to teach me. I was allowed to work there and I picked up on it, but they did teach me. So I got quite a few of the fundamentals from them, but you used the phrase force of will. And that's very true. And quite a few people actually didn't particularly care for my force of will because I was perceived as a demanding bugger, which I was because I was looking after the business and the customer. I I think Spur sometimes gets a a bit of a bad rap from people who think that they're culinary experts. You know, they imagine that somehow the 
the French cuisine that they're cooking up for their husband, which no one else will taste or judge them on. They somehow think that that's superior in some way to the family steakhouse model that you guys built. I mean, I disagree completely and I know nothing Me about too. food, but I do know, I do know what good food tastes like. I mean, I can't cook anything. I can, I can do a reasonable steak, but I can't do very much else. So yeah. what do you think it is that made Spur take off the way that it did aside from the things you've already mentioned because those are all obviously valuable and true you know the consistency the training making sure that you looked after the customers but there's something about the brand and that's where you bring in your creativity too there's something about that that made south africans go that's where we'll go for supper tonight well i think there's the decor which is Nice to be surrounded by. But the most important thing, in my opinion, is the generosity. You've got the salad dressing, which everybody loves, and French fry dressing, the white sauce, the creamy sauce, mm -hmm. the barbecue sauce on the table. Then you've got the special basting that we put on the steaks and burgers and another basting for the chicken and a special seasoning salt on the chips. These are patent recipes that we have exclusively, and they're very important. And the mere fact that you can sit down and help yourself to as much barbecue sauce as you like, you don't have to ask and pay for another portion because you don't pay yeah. for them. They are on the table. That's generosity. In the old days, if a guy had gone halfway through his steak and had no more chips and onions – I'd rush off to the grill with a little side plate, fill it with a nibble portion of chips and onions, go up to him, slide it onto his plate and say, sir, I can see you need some chips and onions. And he'd say, no, no, I don't want it. And I'd say, if you don't want them, please leave them. And I promise you they ate them. And that's generous. <laughs> that's yeah. looking after people. That's, you know, I'll tell you another story very quickly. And that. On rainy days, sometimes we had, a, well, we, we always had queues, but sometimes people didn't want to wait in the queue in the outside blustery wind of Cape Town. And they'd go to their car. I'd run across the road, knock on the window, and they'd wind it down and say, Sir, Madam, sorry to intrude like us, but by the time you go somewhere else, find parking, get so soaking wet in the rain, I'll have you in bed after having had a lovely meal. Won't you just wait five minutes, please? And they'd come back with me more likely than not. Yeah. And I would look after them and give them special attention personally to make sure they were happy. And they'd come back because I knew in the, especially in the early days of the business, if I looked after people, I had a chance they'd come back. If I didn't get them to sit down and eat, I might never see them again. And that's what I was scared of. Um, you mentioned the decor just a second ago, and I mean, here's the yeah. famous Indian chief on the on the cover of your yeah. book. But I mean, that's that must have been a bit of an inspired choice. How did that come about? Because a lot of the stuff that we see now as branding is, you know, it's ad agencies and it's it's kind of made up by a bunch of people who sit in a room and they. How did this come about? I somehow feel like there might be a bit more legend to it than anything else. Well, Gareth, to be fair, if any of the ad agencies I've worked with, or most of them anyway, are listening, um, I must say I'm, I worked with some fantastic people. So the first logo that Spur had was this wheel on a cowboy boot that sharp that the cowboy digs into the flanks of the horse to make him go faster, and it's cruel. And in the yeah. early 80s, I had a sense that South Africa was changing and that I had to give a signal to people of color that they were welcome in Spur, that we didn't want to be 
excluding anybody, which has always been mine, and it was taught me by my parents that everybody's a human being and everybody should be welcome. So I came up with the Red Indian. I had a mate of mine who used to do a different logo for all our stores because all our stores, even though they spur steak ranch, Golden had a little bag with nuggets. Seven had a big seven. Apache had a, uh, an Indian and so on and so forth. So I got somebody, I just bought a building for our offices and I, it was on Eastern Boulevard in Cape Town, very, very well exposed uh, building. And I got a guy to design a frontage for the building with that red Indian in it. And he gave me an old man and it hangs in my office now. I said to him, no, Spur is a virile young brand. I want that red Indian to be exactly that. So he redesigned him and you've shown him to everybody on the cover of the book. And that became our logo. And now I'm hearing in the press that the new people running Spur, I've been out for two and a half, two and three quarter years now. The new people are thinking of dropping the Red Indian. And I think that would be a shame because you don't want to be confused with other sort of similar-ish sort of brands. And over time, no. if you don't have that distinguishing feature, um, I think you'll lose business, you'll lose credibility, you'll lose exposure. But they tell me some people know the world's moved on. I don't agree, but who am I to say? Well, I mean, you know, the, the Americans are renaming football teams and all kinds of things because it's yes, now politically they? incorrect. But you know what's so funny is that for the average person, and it's always these, you know, this tiny minority of very politically correct people who seem to have way too much say in things. But I think the yes. average South African, if we didn't see this, I don't think that we would know we were at Spur, to be perfectly frank. And it's such a hugely successful business. I hope they don't make that mistake and throw away legacy and all that value that's been built up over years and loyalty, frankly. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. But because I, I, I think mean, you, it's very valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know better than anyone else. But, you know, Alan, you, you're you're not a just a guy who started off a business or all this other stuff. You, you're also like a bit of a performer, like you were in the theater. And I want you to talk about that for a little bit, because you do on your, on your books cover say that a steakhouse is a theater of the senses. And I yes. think this is probably related to you and your story as much as it is a true thing to say. I mean, you, you used to get dressed up and perform for people. This was something else that you absolutely loved doing. Tell us how that all started. Well, when I was at school, they used to have a dramatic society, so I was in a couple of plays. When I was at university, I was in a couple of plays directed by a very, very bright young student by the name of Joseph Sherman, who was an amazing director. And we did well. We got good crits from the stars critic in those days, Oliver Walker, who my dad respected. So that made yeah. me feel and then when I started exiting the retail night trade and running more the growth of the franchise, um, the space theater in Cape Town, which was uh, an anti-apartheid theater uh, run by Brian Asprey and Yvonne Bryceland, who eventually ended up in England, and, and Brian is still there, they produced plays, and I had a friend called Percy Seif who was on radio in the old days and was an actor, and he got me into the space, and I was in a few plays for them, and then I got invited to 
take a part in Long Day's Journey in Tonight by Eugene O'Neill. And when I told my wife I wanted to do this, she said, look, if you do this, you've been in the steakhouse for years. Now you want to be working nights in the theater. If you do this, I'm going to leave you. And so <laughs> I didn't take that part. I left the theater. And eventually, I'm afraid to say, she left me anyway. So I should have carried on in the theater because I found it terribly fulfilling. But unfortunately or fortunately, because we had a good marriage for a long time um, and we had two children and who I'm very proud of today. And I've got a third mm -hmm. one as well, a youngster of 27. Who I'm equally proud of. Um, yeah, that's how life goes. So I, I did have the ability, the talent to act, um, provided I had a good director to show me the way and most directors did. So there you go. I did have that well, part of life as well. You mentioned your children, and I mean, Spur was your, your was your eldest child, whether you like it or not. You even yeah. say so in the book, right? So I how did your born. kids? I mean, yeah, they must have grown up kind of in the restaurant, right? So they must have figured out that this was where they had to be because Dad was working really hard. And if you, really. if you weren't part of that that family business, no. No, they, look, they used to come to the Spur for, for meals, but by the time they were big enough to be in the outside world and go out for a burger, I'd be the one who took them with their mom, and I was already now no longer working full days and nights, and I wasn't in retail anymore. I was now in growing the franchise, working more like 9 to 10, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., to 10 p.m. rather than 8 a.m. till 2 a.m., which is what retail demanded in the main. So they didn't grow up in the store like some restaurateurs' families do. Their mother kept them at home, at school, home, and then on weekends they'd go to the spur. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I mean, they—they they obviously, you know, you—you you, there are nice pictures in the book too of you and your family going to Mauritius to celebrate a family occasion. And obviously, you know, there's something about this spur giving back to you guys and and giving back a bit of time. You've always been very keen on yoga. Um, tell me about yeah. what that means to you. You 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 practice uh, yoga every day, right? Yeah, I practice it six days a week. I have one day's rest. Um, I'm teaching on Zoom uh, five days a week. Um, I, it's, it's 22 classes a month for 300 rand. All the money goes to Ladles of Love Charity, feeding the poor in the Cape Flats, which is uh, an organization built up by this amazing man, Danny De Liberto. I don't know if you've heard of him. And I've got a group of pupils who are very loyal. And I must say... Iyengar yoga has been my savior because it's kept me fit, strong, and healthy. And yeah. uh, you can't ask for more than that. You know, I don't get sick. I am very fit. I walk the mountain. And I love yoga. It's very good for you, and it's very satisfying mentally and physically. And I've been doing it for 53 years. 
It's incredible. And I, I've, having met you in person, I know how much vitality and energy you have. So, I mean, with all of this incredible stuff that you put in the book, and there's obviously a little bit of the controversy of kind of what happened at the Texaco Spur and that stuff that went on social media and how you guys had to deal with that. There's also stories yeah. about your, your parents and their lives and so much color and, and, and information here about a really incredible life. But you're not finished yet. I mean, you still... You're still a busy man. You have a lot going on at the moment. Um, and, and it's not likely to stop, is it? You've got a huge amount of energy. Well, I have got a lot of energy, and I think that also comes from yoga. And as far as having the energy and my life's not over, that's most certainly, I hope, the truth, factual. And I just want to say, if I may, I hope you don't mind, that I'm looking to lecture to people. I'm looking for consultation mm. work because now that sure. the book's written and the interviews are mostly done, I do have quite a lot of spare time and I'm keen to get involved if it's for nonprofit organizations to do some work for them to give back. I'm already giving back by teaching yoga and all the money going to a charity and I, I've got lots of time to do more. So if there's anybody out there who's looking for a youngster like myself to help them grow or develop or improve or use some of my knowledge to help them, here I am. Give me wow, a shout. It's, it's, not, it's not often that you get uh, an offer like that from someone who's as accomplished as you are. So I'm sure that there will be many ways that people will be trying to contact you in the next few weeks. Alan, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Well done on the book and congratulations you. on your incredible success. The fact that you continue to inspire so many of us. And I hope that we'll see you again in our studio soon. Thanks, Gareth. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I always enjoy myself. And that's what you want from life. You want to do something that you enjoy. You don't want to do something that grinds you into the dust. So thank Damn you. Right. That's, those are wise words. Thank you so much. Alan Amber, everybody.